We'll hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, that is God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of our Lord. Well, it seems to me that the world is in the midst of an epidemic and every human, plant, human on the planet has been infected. The disease is not found in any organ or system of human anatomy, and no earthly cure has ever been successful against it, although many have been attempted. For it is a disease of the soul, and it affects your will, your thoughts, and your affections. The disease is commonly known as discontent. Now, if you are not convinced that you suffer from this disease, I do have an at-home test that is 100% accurate. I want you at, at some point to take two fingers, either place them on your wrist or on your neck, and feel for a pulse. If you do not feel a pulse, you probably should call 911, but even if you do, I have bad news for you, because it means that you are indeed infected. Because this disease is hereditary, it is contracted at conception, and even though it may take some time for symptoms to manifest, it will manifest. And unfortunately, there is no such thing as natural immunity because it is indeed a disease of your very nature which has been corrupted by sin. But the good news is there is hope. For even though there is no earthly cure, there is a heavenly cure. The cure is contentment. So we read in verse 5 of our text, Be content with what you have. The contented soul is the healthy soul. It is also, as I will try to persuade you this evening, the happiest soul. Contentment is the third pleasing sacrifice of praise and acceptable worship that is listed here in Hebrews 13. If you work through letter to the Hebrews, as we just finished doing at Good Shepherd, you see that Hebrews 13 is essentially answering what does acceptable worship, taking the phrase from the end of chapter 12, look like now that Christ has come and inaugurated the new covenant. 
If, as the author argues, sacrifices of pardon are done away with because of the sacrifice of Christ, what now are the sacrifices of praise which we are to offer and which please God? Again, borrowing language from a little bit later in Hebrews 13. And if you read through this chapter, you see that the first two answers are brotherly love in verse 1. That is a mark of acceptable worship. And sexual purity, as you see in verse 4. The third mark, the third pleasing sacrifice of acceptable worship is divine contentment. So this evening, I'm going to consider the natures of contentment and discontent, the conditions of contentment and discontent, and the source of contentment in the hope that you will more earnestly desire contentment and eagerly pursue it. First, then, let's consider the natures of contentment and discontent. What are they? Well, to be discontent is to put it simply to be dissatisfied at all times. It's like drinking and always feeling thirsty, eating and always feeling hungry. It is to have the object of your desire always just outside of your reach. It is to always see your condition in life in light of your neighbor's condition. It is to never be happy no matter what you have and never find peace no matter what you pursue. Contentment, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It is to be satisfied at all times. It is to feel satiated whether you are drinking or thirsting, whether you are eating or starving. It is to be thankful with whatever you hold. It is to always see your condition in light of God's provision. It is an untouchable cheerfulness to be happy no matter what you have or don't have. It is to possess peace whether your pursuits are successful or not. There are therefore three elements of contentment and discontent, two of which are the same for both and one which differs between the two. So both contentment and discontent are internal and habitual. They are internal, meaning they are matters of the heart. And so they cannot be dealt with by any external changes or acquisitions. And this, as we're going to see, is crucial because it means that whether you are content or discontent depends on something inside you, not on anything outside of you. They are also both habitual, which by that I just mean they are constant conditions. The content are always content. The discontent are always discontent. As Sinclair Ferguson says, you, if you are not content with much, 
you will never be content with little. But if you cannot be content with a little, what makes you think you would ever be content with much? So discontentment is habitual, but so is contentment. This is why the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You you hear the constancy of Paul. His contentment is habitual. It is not circumstantial. It is a fixed star in the constellation of his soul, not one that, that twinkles and flickers out. Which further proves that contentment and discontent are the result of internal conditions, not external situations. But Paul's words to the Philippians also reveal the third and differing element of contentment and discontent. For while both are habitual and internal, discontent is a natural instinct while contentment is a supernatural lesson. See, no one needs to teach a child to be discontent. Discontentment, it's like breathing. You you just start doing it without any instruction. But this isn't the case with contentment. You heard Paul say, I have learned. He had to learn contentment. It was a hard and supernatural lesson. And this is important to understand because it reminds you that good things are always hard to come by. Contentment is difficult. It's perhaps the most challenging course you will take and curriculum you will have to learn. Now, do you doubt me that this is a hard lesson? Well, I would just remind you that even many of the angels in heaven failed to learn this lesson. Jude tells us that many angels were not content with their God-given position of authority and proper dwelling, and so they were cast down in chains. And we know that our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were free from the corruption of sin, were not content to be made in God's image. They wanted to be God. And so they forfeit their heavenly garden and home. Now, do you think that you and your sinful corruption are a better student than the angels were in their glory or Adam and Eve were in their innocence? So again, I say contentment is a hard and supernatural lesson. True contentment is therefore rightly called divine contentment and is often connected in the Bible with godliness. So while the natural man can experience temporary delights in the midst of his discontent, he cannot truly ever be content. For to be Content is to be godly, and godliness is the fruit of God's grace. And so a contented heart is a gracious, a grace-filled heart. Which is why the 
Puritan Thomas Watson says, until we have learned contentment, we have not learned to be Christians. And I would simply add, you cannot learn contentment until you have learned to be a Christian. These are the natures of contentment and discontent. But why should you pursue the one and kill the other? Now, I could just solely appeal to you based on God's command. And God's commands ought to be enough for us. We hear the command in our text. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. This is one and the same command, just stated from two different sides. Negatively, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. And money here just stands for all earthly possessions. Jesus commanded the exact same thing, observing that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. And you are always going to serve the master you love, which is why if you are to keep your life free, this is why you must keep your life free from the love of money. The emphasis on love, again, reinforces the internal spiritual nature of this command. It is a command for the heart. But then the author just states the same thing positively. Be content with what you have. And this helps us understand that contentment is not just about material possessions. It encompasses the entire sphere of your earthly existence. He says, be content with what or whatever you have. Your intellect, your abilities, your finances, your job, your relationships, your achievements, your recognition, etc. You are to be content with what you have in every sphere and dynamic of life. That is the command. And yet I recognize that simply appealing to the divine command alone often will not move the soul because our souls are naturally rebellious. But thankfully, in his word, God supplies us with many motivations to obey his commands, helping us see that his good commands are always for our good. So even though I could offer many motivations, I'm just going to appeal to you this evening by describing the very different conditions of contentment and discontent. Because even though we we do not naturally love God, we do naturally love ourselves and we want to avoid misery and we want to obtain happiness. And so I'm just going to describe these two conditions for you. The misery of discontent and the excellency and happiness of contentment. I'm not going to try to explain and define these anymore, but I, I just want to describe them because I think we all know that discontent is miserable and contentment is happiness, but I hope these various images and and metaphors will just help you sense again what you already know. Life, as Ecclesiastes and James tells us, is a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. And so you must understand that 
discontent will shorten your already short life because it wastes every today by pining for every tomorrow. Contentment, on the other hand, is eternal life every day. It fills today with peace and tomorrow with hope. A heart full of discontent is like a body full of dislocated bones. Every movement is painful. But contentment is a body well aligned where movement is free and fluid. Discontent is like a soul that is out of tune. No matter what the song is, the notes will always sound sour. But contentment is a soul in tune and... So no matter the song, every note is sweet. The discontent are like King Ahab, who had an entire kingdom, but he could not sleep knowing that Naboth had a vineyard he didn't have. But the content are like King David, who could sleep peacefully even when he was surrounded by enemies. You see, the discontent cannot enjoy what they have, and so they can never gain joy, no matter what they gain. But the content have joy in everything they have, and they cannot lose it, no matter what they may lose. And so the discontent are like Jonah, who asks for death because God has taken away his gourd. They are like Israel, begging for earthly quail, even though God has given them heavenly bread. But the content are like Job, who blesses God even when he loses all of his children. They are like Jesus, who asks for nothing more than his daily bread. Discontent will corrode your comfort and swell your grief. But contentment enlarges God's grace, and it buoys the soul up to receive more comfort, no matter how high the sorrows swell. The discontent cannot be healed because discontent deceives the soul into into mistrusting the great physician. It calls all of God's cures poisons. It will keep the heart from healing because it will keep it from its holy medicine that would bring relief. But contentment is an intelligent disposition. It recognizes the wisdom and goodness of the physician and so it welcomes all of his remedies. Discontent is dangerous. Because it is a sin that invites more sins to come feast at its table of misery. It is like the demon that finds the house empty and clean, and so it goes out and finds four, seven more spirits more evil than itself to come and enter. It is an open highway to temptation, for the devil loves to fish in the discontented waters. It is a breach in the fortress, a tunnel for the enemy to enter in and storm the soul. But contentment is safety from sin and temptation. It is an invincible spirit because no suffering can overpower it. It is like antibodies seeking and killing the the sickness of envy, bitterness, self-pity, impatience, and despair. Contentment is a load-bearing wall that holds the ceiling up. 
It is a shield that absorbs every blow. It is a gracious host that welcomes God's varied graces to come and rest in its home. Discontent will find a curse in every blessing and a loss in every gain. But contentment will find a blessing in every curse and gain in every loss. Discontent always mistranslates God's providence, saying like the Israelites after God freed them from slavery in Egypt, He has brought us here to die. But the contented soul is a wise interpreter advocating for God against unbelief and impatience. So while discontent always interprets God's works in the worst possible way and turns them into accusations, contentment takes all of God's works in the best light and turns them into praise. Discontent adds weight to every burden. Contentment gives strength to the bearer. Discontent will make every man unreasonable, every sorrow unbearable. It will prolong the trouble even when relief has come. But contentment will produce patience in trouble as you wait for relief. Do you see? It is not trouble that troubles your soul. It is discontent. It's not the water outside the boat that's going to sink you. It's the water inside the boat that will weigh you down into its miserable depths. You are not discontent because you want. You want because you are discontent. No matter how clear the sky and still the wind, the sea of your soul will be restless if it is discontent. It is to live with a devil in your soul that will make it a little hell. It is death in the midst of life. But contentment is calm in the storm. No matter how many stones are dropped in, the ripples will soon settle back into place. Contentment is like a perpetual Sabbath in your soul because it is God in your soul. So while discontent will deform you into a devil, contentment will conform you to Christ. Contentment is heaven living in your heart while you wait for your heart to finally live in heaven. Do you not long for such a life? Truly, there is no happier condition in all the world than that of divine contentment. So how may you possess a contented heart? Well, it is not by trusting in earthly possessions. It is only by trusting in a heavenly promise. And what is that promise? You see it in our text. Again, we read, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for or because this is why you can be content for he, that is God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, that is the hope for every man. Not every man will be capable of accumulating many earthly possessions. But every man can be rich in promises. 
As Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. No, it consists in the abundance of grace that is found in Christ. You see then that the key to contentment is the promise of God's presence. And so if you are to keep your life free from the love of money, from anything earthly, you must live your life filling it with the love of God. Because if God is not your delight, you will be discontent. Because God's promise is not you will have whatever you want. His promise is you will always have me. The bucket of contentment drawn up from the well is tethered to a promise. But the promise is not you will always gain and never lose earthly possessions. It is that you will gain and never lose your eternal inheritance. This was God's promise to Jacob. He said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. Likewise, this was God's promise to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This is God's promise to all of his people. And just think for a moment who this God is who has promised to be yours. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the Father of lights. He is the giver of every good gift. He is the true and faithful one, the all-wise, all-knowing God, the God of all comfort and of all grace. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. He is the almighty and the all-loving. He is goodness and grace. He is justice and mercy. I wonder what comfort you would gain each day if you just took a few moments to meditate on just the names and character of God and then think, that's my God who has said to me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then I believe we would all be able to confidently say with the psalmist, which is quoted in verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is the promise. Here then are two helps, knowing that It is this Lord who is your helper and who says he will never leave you. And I hope that these helps will help you reason against your unreasonable discontent. Because discontent will make excuses and arguments for its existence. It will disguise itself in arguments suggesting it's not a sin. It's just the appropriate response to your circumstances. As if it was rational, as if it was your right to be discontent when things do not go the way you want them to go. But you never, 
no matter the circumstances, have a right to be discontent. It is always a sin against God. So when you think, I, I have a right to be discontent because I have lost a child or a spouse or a loved one, because I've lost financial security, because my children or my spouse are a burden and grief to me, because my friend has betrayed me, because I have suffered greatly in, in various ways, because the wicked who are not obeying God are prospering more than I am, or any other number of excuses you might come up with, Again, I want you to remember these two things in light of God's promise. The first is that it is God who has put you in whatever earthly condition you are in. And he has done so according to his perfect wisdom, knowledge, and love. He loves you and he actually knows what is best for you. See, the first question we often ask when, when we're where we don't want to be is, why am I here? But the first question you need to ask yourself is, who has placed me here? And the answer is, your Heavenly Father has placed you there. Whether the place is higher or lower, you are not there because of luck or fortune or blind fate. You are there because God's wise and loving providence has put you there. When you are discontent, therefore, you need to remember that, that you are murmuring, you are grumbling against God. And as Thomas Watson says, murmuring is the devil's music. You're not only challenging God's authority, you are challenging His wisdom, His knowledge, His love. To strain against God's bonds is an attempt to free yourself from the sphere of His providence, which is futile because you cannot overthrow God, and it is foolish because you are trying to break free from the one who does what is best for you. So when you feel discontent, Remind yourself who placed you in your current position. It is the one who knows what is best and who works all things for your best. The fact that you are not experiencing the same condition as someone else is not an indication, well, God loves that person more than he loves me. It is simply evidence that God actually knows each of his children, and he knows that his children are not all exactly the same. I have four wonderful children, and yes, there are certain ways they are similar. There are certain needs they all have, but they are not the same. And how I treat and discipline one is not necessarily how I should treat and discipline the other. Because what is good for one may not be good for the other. What may humble one may puff up the other. What might help one might harm the other. And so you need to trust that God will only give you what is good for you. And he will only withhold what is not good for you. And good in and of itself and good for you are not always the same thing. 
Thomas Watson again says, The wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees that it is better for us to abound, we shall abound. And if he sees that it is better for us to want, we shall want. Be content to be at God's disposal. God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not convenient for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. One season of weather will not serve all men's occasions. One needs sunshine, another rain. I think that's a a great example. I always want it to be sunny and dry because I just feel happier when it is. But farmers want it to rain. So... Sometimes we're going to need sun. Sometimes we're going to need rain. We're not in the exact same place. So you may experience more adversity than someone else because God has fit you for more adversity and he will bring more good out of it for you. Just as God has not given us all the same physical strength, he has not given us all the same spiritual strength. Some are built to bear heavier burdens, and they will gain more blessings out of them. And the same is true with prosperity. He may guard you from certain good things because they would not do you good. They would tempt you more to sin than they would serve your sanctification. So God's goodness is equally evidenced in the good that he withholds as it is in the good that he gives. Because you do not know what goods would be snares for you. You don't know what worldly gains would lead to the loss of your soul. But God knows, and so he deals with you accordingly. Now, let me just clarify here. Does this mean that you can never feel sad or cry out to God when things are not going well? Does this mean that you cannot desire things or ask God for them? Does this mean that you should be content with everything, including your own sin or the sins of others? No, it doesn't mean any of that. To be content is not to be stoic or numb. It is appropriate that you feel sorrow in suffering. And you should cry out to the Lord in the midst of that. Neither does this mean you you can never ask God for good things. The Bible tells you to ask God for good things. And certainly you should never be content with sin. And if you are in situations where, where you are being sinned again, it doesn't mean you just have to grin and bear it. It simply means that you cry out to God, you ask of God, and you seek to, yes, change certain circumstances, trusting in God to give the best answers, whether they are the answers you think are best or whether they are in the timing that you think is best. So it is right to weep. It's wrong to refuse to be comforted. It is right to desire. It is wrong to demand. There is a difference between a holy cry to God and a discontented complaint against God. Contentment feels sorrow and longing, but it maintains joy and peace in the midst of it. 
And when it cries out and asks of God, it always ends as Jesus ended his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And I would simply add to this that no matter what condition you are suffering and feel you have a right to be discontent, you de- we, we all need to remember that our sins are always greater than our suffering, and because of Christ, we will always suffer far less than our sins deserve. In loss, there is only suffering. In discontent, there is only sin. And a thousand sufferings are better than one sin. So mourn, but do not murmur. Be humble, not hostile. Pray, don't pout. Cry out in righteous anguish, but not unrighteous anger. Ask God questions, but do not question God. Depend on him, but do not be discontent. The last and final help is remember that whatever earthly condition God has placed you in, he has also promised to be with you wherever that is. So after asking who has placed me here, ask yourself, who is with me here? And if God is with you, you are safe wherever you are. If you have God, it means you have all that you need. So focus on what you have and can never lose, for what you have and cannot lose is always greater and far better than whatever you could have and which you will certainly lose. And this promise of God to never leave you nor forsake you is ultimately filled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the yes and amen to every single one of God's promises. And so if God has given you his Son then he can never give you more than he has already given you, including more pleasure. And no matter what he takes from you, it will never compare to what you still have in Christ. Again, Watson asks, what need does he have to complain of losses who has Christ? Christ is his Father's brightness, his fullness, and his delight. Is there enough in Christ to delight the heart of God, and is there not enough in him to ravish us with holy delight? This is what the psalmist Asaph had to learn when he began to envy the prosperity of the wicked, as he tells us in Psalm 73. But finally, through worship, Asaph realizes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Earthly blessings are not the only, nor are they even the best blessings. See, the prosperity of the wicked should should not lead you to envy. It should actually lead you to pity because that is the most of heaven they will ever experience. And your earthly pain is the most of hell you will ever experience when you are in Christ. Who would envy the gourmet meal of a man who is about to go to his execution? And also remember that God's grace is far greater than his gifts. Grace without gifts is better than gifts without grace. 
desire God's grace, which is found only in Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have all you need to be content. Your portion is the greatest portion, for he is an indescribable and inexhaustible good. The light of all earthly pleasures compared to the light of Christ is like the light of the stars compared to the light of the sun. Yes, starlight is good. It is beautiful. But who would complain when they are standing in the full brightness of the sun, God has taken away starlight from me. And yet you cannot have both at the same time. To be in the sun... You must lose the stars. And in this way, sometimes God must take away or withhold something good in order to give us something better. And if you ever read through all of Hebrews, you will see that that is his main argument over and over again. The author of Hebrews is concerned for these Christians that they are going to forsake Christ and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. But his arguments and warnings are not over and over to the Hebrews. The fight of faith is fighting against all of that bad stuff. Yes, the fight of faith is a fight against sin. It is a fight against what is bad. But even more so, the fight of faith is a fight for what is better. That's the argument of Hebrews. It's it's not everything is bad, bad, bad. The argument is there's something better, better, better. And that better is repeatedly held up to us as Jesus Christ. One of my favorite things to do with my kids as each of them get older. I've got multiple series of books that I I read through each of my kids one at a time and I always start with the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm on child number three, three three times now going through this and I just finished with my daughter Talitha who's five years old, the, the, the Dawn Treader, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And as happens in, in every book, there are just periods where I can't read anymore because I just stop, I just get, I start crying. It, it happens every time. And that always happens at the end of the Dawn Treader. Because at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read it, Aslan, the lion, tells Edmund and Lucy that they're never going to be able to come to Narnia again. And Lucy is absolutely devastated. But she says to Aslan, Essentially, I'm not devastated because I'm losing Narnia. I'm devastated because it means I'm not going to see you again. And Aslan assures Lucy, Lucy, you can know me in your world too. You'll just know me by a different name. And I have the joy to tell you that 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 better Aslan is real. And he is in our world And his name is Jesus. And you don't ever have to lose him. You see, the song of contentment is a song of praise in every circumstance because we have found something better that we will never lose. 
It is the song of the psalmist who says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It is the song of Habakkuk who sings, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, the psalmist in Habakkuk had contentment because they had a promise. And you and I have the same promise. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So are you in trouble? Remember that your wise, loving, and heavenly Father has placed you where you are. And he has promised to be with you where you are. And so even in the midst of trouble, you may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Almighty God, I I do pray for every single one of us this evening that you would open our eyes to behold the wonder and the glory and the beauty and the pleasure that is Jesus Christ. For those of us who who may be in troubled circumstances, teach us to mourn but not to murmur. Guard us from bitterness and envy and discontent that would well up within us and help us to know that you are with us. And Lord, I I pray for those here who may be feeling enslaved to sin. Sin that they feel like they have been fighting or maybe not fighting, but that they just cannot seem to get out of. I pray that even more than helping them see that sin is bad, you would help them see now that Jesus is better. And they would hate sin because they would know that it would keep them from the better that is Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.